Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your host, Dr. Jamie Rasmussen, and welcome to another episode of Habits That Heal, a podcast dedicated to giving you the tools and insights necessary to protect your greatest asset, your health. And today's episode is The Worst Two Months of My Life. In the last 50 years, your parents' approach to health has led to a 1,200% increase in chronic illness, and it's only getting worse. Until the conversation around health changes, you can expect your results to be the same. If you're okay with a life filled with unnecessary suffering, tune out. If you want to break the cycle, let's get to work. On this episode, I'm going to be sharing a personal story that had a pretty profound impact on me as a human being and as a health professional. And it's all started on May 9th, 2016. My middle son, Reese, was riding his bike that had training wheels on it. He was four years old and it was a warm day finally in Minnesota. He was uh, ripping up and down the sidewalks at our new home and he came in that day and he had a puffy eyelid, or at least it looked puffy. It turns out it was droopy. Um, I thought it was a sty. It looked like a sty because it was puffy. So we put a warm compress on it. And then I went to work the next day, Monday, and Katie, my wife, had kept him at home because he didn't feel well. And by the time I got home from work that day, she said, I think something's happening, something's wrong, because uh, at that point, he couldn't hold himself up. He couldn't stand up. His legs were too weak. So we got him to Children's Hospital in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he was in the ER, and they started to run a bunch of different tests because they didn't know what it could be. So we did uh, CT scans, MRIs. They ended up doing a spinal tap on him. And this was on a Monday and um, he was admitted. He slept overnight there. By Tuesday morning, we were hauling him around in one of those little red wagons and he was getting weaker and weaker and... (laughs) We had brought him down to the gift shop in that wagon, and um, a woman in the elevator looked at him and told my wife how sorry she was, and my wife started to cry, and it hit me really hard, like this is something very, very serious. And by Tuesday evening, he was intubated, meaning he had a tube down his throat to help him breathe, and he was admitted into the ICU part of the hospital. He had machines hooked up to him. They said, we think it is Guillain-Barre, a autoimmune condition where your own immune system attacks your nervous system, and it attacks the myelin sheath, which surrounds your nerves. And when it eats that away, the nerves don't work anymore. So it leads to paralysis. Most Guillain-Barre cases happen in adults, and most of them start in the legs and work their way up. So it starts with leg weakness. Reese's was a very rare form of Guillain-Barre called Miller-Fisher's variant. And previously, the youngest to ever have been diagnosed with that condition was 13 years old. Reese was four. And what that specific type of Guillain-Barre does is it attacks the nerves that go to your lungs and your mouth and your throat and your eyelids. And that's why his eyelid was droopy and it attacks him first. And it's a very aggressive form of Guillain-Barre and a very, very dangerous form of Guillain-Barre 
because when it happens, uh, at least in Reese's case, it happened very quickly and he uh, couldn't breathe on his own. So he needed machines to do that and he couldn't swallow. So they had to stick tubes down his throat and uh, clean out his lungs. And the type of therapy that they do for this condition um, is immunoglobulin therapy and that is an IV therapy. And generally, it's pretty successful with Guillain-Barre, but uh, in his case, he did not respond to it, which was not good. And the next line of defense was something called plasmapheresis, where they take out all of his blood, run it through this machine, and uh, clean up the plasma and then reintroduce it into his body. It's much um, more invasive and more dangerous. And all of this is happening um, over a period of about a couple weeks as we're trying to figure out, uh, number one, what he has, because they had to do another spinal tap because they weren't sold on the results of what he had. Again, it presented in a very strange way, not in a typical way of Guillain-Barre. So in the meantime, this is where this story matters to you, is that I learned a, a lot of stuff about how important your habits are and how important being prepared and resilient for when life happens because life was happening in a very extreme way. And a lot of uh, families are affected by tragedies like this all the time. And the more resilient you can be going into this situation, the better the outcomes for everybody involved. So um, going into this, our family had uh, eaten clean. We're out moving around all the time. My kids were very active. My kids had been adjusted since they were little, but there were things that we were missing along the way that really I've learned now, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And uh, I truly believe that what happened to him could have been prevented. There were some telltale warning signs with Reese's specific condition from the time he was born. So when he was a baby, he had eczema really bad. And eczema is an autoimmune condition. And a lot of autoimmune conditions start in the gut and specifically with leaky gut, which has become very, very prevalent right now. If you went back to grocery stores 40 years ago, gluten-free aisles and departments wouldn't exist. Now they are very commonplace. Things like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, dementia, those conditions, a lot of them starting in the gut, were much less frequent. We talked about how chronic illness rates have exploded in the last 50 years. A big part of it has to do with our gut wall being blasted apart. Well, Reese's was wide open and his body started attacking things it shouldn't attack, which is what happens with leaky gut. And eventually it got so bad where it attacked his own nervous system, the system that's responsible for you surviving in this world and adapting to stress and living it. The nervous system controls everything in the body. And we got a real lesson in that when his uh, was affected in a major way. Reese, um, that was something that we should have caught, but we didn't. And we were in the hospital and I was... Uh, a traditional chiropractor at the time, meaning I just had learned what I had learned in school. I hadn't received advanced training in pediatrics nor in neurological chiropractic, which is what I practice now. So he had six ports coming out of his neck, tubes going down his throat. Really, I couldn't do anything as far as adjustments go for Reese. And I had adjusted kids in my clinic and saw really cool things happen in the past. So I knew he needed to be adjusted so one of the first things we did when we got to the hospital was we called up one of my colleagues who I'm eternally grateful to. 
we called him at 11 p.m. He lives about an hour away from the hospital. So he got there about midnight. And on the phone, I said, hey, I don't know what to do for this kid. I know you practice tonal chiropractic, which is a type of neurological chiropractic. It's not the traditional type of chiropractic that you think of when you think of chiropractic. It's a very light force, non-invasive. The only way that I could see him being adjusted at that point with everything up around his neck and his head. And uh, we had to sneak Dr. Jeff in because currently at hospitals, um, it's a no-no to have a chiropractor come in and help it's your kid. And that's exactly what Dr. Jeff did. He came in and he adjusted Reese and it was basically a miracle after he got adjusted. His oxygen saturation levels immediately after the adjustment normalized because he had machines hooked up to him. We could actually see the numbers change immediately after the adjustment. The same was true for his heart rate. His heart rate was all over the place and the adjustment completely normalized it. It was incredible. It was at that point that I was completely sold on that technique. And from that point on, that's what I dedicated to learning and delivering to all my patients in my office. And um, my results went from great to incredible. So uh, if you are listening to this podcast and you are looking for a referral for a neurological or tonal chiropractor, you can reach us through either pathoutofpain.com or on our Facebook page at Health Path Chiropractic. So he had come to the hospital a handful of times and adjusted him, and it was incredible every single time. And I attribute his early release to Dr. Jeff and what he was able to do for him. Initially, when we got there, they said planned for being here at least six months based on how aggressive Reese's condition was. And we were out of the ICU in four weeks, and we were into Gillette's. And we were out of Gillette's in four weeks. So total hospital time, two months. But it really was the worst two months of my entire life. And there were a lot of things happening at that time. Both my wife and I work. I run a busy chiropractic practice in Minnesota. And I'm the only doctor there. So it was either shut the doors down or, you know, suck it up, go to work, and essentially trade shifts at the hospital. So every other night... I would be sleeping at the hospital. I would drive into my clinic, which was about 35 minutes from the hospital, and I would see a lot of patients. And then we would do that over and over again. It was about two months before my wife and I slept in the same bed. So we were two shifts passing in the night. And while we we're at the hospital, if you've ever been in a hospital or had to sleep in the ICU, I hope you never have to experience that. You really don't sleep. For Reese, every two hours, they would have to bring in a machine that would shake all the gunk out of his lungs so they could pump it out because after a little while in the ICU, he developed pneumonia, which is not uncommon. So he was in the ICU for about three weeks when they said it's time to do a trach. And the reason for that is if he can't swallow and manage secretions on his own, they need a safe, quick, and effective way to... Uh, help him breathe and manage secretions. And putting in a trach is the way to do that. And a, a trach is um, where they do an incision along the throat and they open it up. Some people you'll see uh, still have those scars. But the trouble with that is it's invasive. It can be dangerous. And it can have a pretty major impact on speech down the road. So the doctors were uh, pushing us to do that. And we talked to every single doctor. We had pulmonologists in there. We had speech therapists in there. We had uh, the entire floor in there telling us that 
uh, it was a necessity and we had to do it. And throughout that process, as we had seen him um, get adjusted and as we saw him try to manage these things on his own, because with the plasmapheresis, he was actually improving along the way a little bit. And we said, no, I think we can do it. But they didn't want to do it because that meant they had to unhook him from the machines. And if he couldn't manage secretions on his own, if he couldn't clear his lungs, he would be at risk of drowning in his own saliva. And they didn't want to have an emergency team on hand to try and save him if this started to happen. It was a much safer procedure if it was in a controlled environment. So everybody said no, except for one young doctor who had young boys himself. And we convinced him and he decided to give Reese a chance. And I, (laughs) wow, it was the most stressful two minutes of my entire life. What happened is they had an emergency team surrounding him. They unhooked him from the oxygen. And in the weakest sounding noise, Reese started to clear his throat just a little bit. And it sounded like he wasn't going to be able to do it. But he pulled it off and he didn't need a trach. And that would have extended his hospital stay there at least a few more weeks. And within a week after that, we were out of that hospital. We were out of the ICU and we were into Gillette's hospital. And after Gillette's four weeks there... Our family was back together. Reese had to learn to use all of his muscles again. That's why he was at Gillette's. He had to learn to walk again. He had to learn to talk again. He had to learn to chew food again. He had to learn to use crayons again. And it was a long road out of that. But today, if you saw him, you wouldn't know that anything like that had ever happened to him. And Here are the insights that I learned and the tools that I took away from this entire horrific experience that I hope you never have to experience in your life. It helped us through. We came out stronger than when we went into it. And Katie and I were able to handle the stress and anxiety of that entire process in a healthy way and make clear-headed decisions that really impacted how all of this ended up as a result of these tools and insights that I'm going to share with you. So like I mentioned, we ate clean. So clean eating is eating things that are, you know, real foods. Generally, let's just keep it simple for this episode. But we had made a habit of eating clean, real food. This type of food is less inflammatory than the standard American diet. And inflammation has been linked to a whole host of conditions, a couple of them being anxiety and depression. So your mental health is massively impacted by what you eat and how you eat. Another tool that we used was meditation. I had been meditating infrequently up until that point, but I started to meditate on a regular basis while we were going throughout that process. And that had been another incredible useful tool to our mental health throughout that process. Uh, Fitness was another thing that didn't go by the wayside throughout this process. Fitness is often an outlet, also very important for mental health and stress management. So those are tools that I had been using that really made me more resilient. And I believe if you're smart, you're going to start doing these things on a habitual routine basis because here's the reality. It's not if some tragedy is going to happen in your life. It's a matter of when it's going to happen and are you going to do the things necessary to prepare for this. And throughout this process going forward, that's going to be our conversation. We're going to be talking about creating habits that promote healing, habits that promote resiliency, On the next episode, we will be talking about habits that steal. 
habits that take away from life, habits that rob your health. And then I'll be sharing easiest ways to start cutting them out. Love y'all. Bye. And that concludes this episode of Habits That Heal. Now it's time to get to work because ideas without action are useless. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave an honest review. And to continue this conversation, follow us at pathoutofpain.com and on Facebook at Habits That Healed.